Today we're beginning the first session in our last book, our last, our last study of the characters of the Bible. We have moved through from Genesis all the way to Jesus, to the early followers of Jesus, and now we're looking at the early founders of the Christian church, the first Christian leaders in the world. And we're looking at Stephen this morning in particular, uh, and I am going through my sermon and I was telling Kim this morning, as I read through Acts and I read through our scripture reading, I, I know in my mind that I touched on this thing recently. Uh, the, the, the scripture looks familiar to me, and I can't help but figure out, I can't figure out where it was that we talked about this in our studies. But if you feel like this is a familiar theme or a familiar scripture reading, just know that I'm right there with you. I just can't for the life of me place when it was I had talked about this. But... For the sake of talking about Stephen, we know that the early Christians, they faced great persecution, the kind of persecution that we have no idea uh, today. It was, it was an awful persecution. They were dragging people out of their homes and, and killing them in the streets. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, uh, the Sanhedrin court, rather, they had a problem on their hands because they had hoped that crucifying this Jesus fellow would put an end to the, the, the blasphemy that they considered to be happening amongst what they saw as, as purely a cult at this point, right? You, you got Jesus, you got a handful of followers, and they're spreading all of this quote-unquote misinformation about, about God and about the laws of Moses. And we're going to touch on two other points before we get to um, Stephen here. But in Acts chapter, five, uh, chapter 4... And there's going to be real brief readings. You don't have to turn there with me if you don't want to. But, but Paul and, uh, Peter and John had been called into the Sanhedrin court. The Sanhedrin was trying to figure out what to do with more followers of Jesus that they had found. It says in verse 13 of Acts 4, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further amongst the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Under further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And so the Sanhedrin, they capture Peter and John. And we had talked about Peter recently, about how he was the rock, but then he denied Christ and kind of had a falling out. And now here he is willing to stand before the Sanhedrin court, the very court that sentenced his Lord and Savior to death, willing to go the same, willing to do the same. But the Sanhedrin, they knew that the people had seen these miracles happening. The people were praising God in the streets, and to do something rash might set a revolt against them. And so they threatened them, gave them a written warning, as it were, and sent Peter and John on their way.
We see again in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are gathered in. This time it's a, small, a bigger group. Verse 27 of Acts 5, it reads, The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and have determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him by his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, the Sanhedrin, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin. And so you've got this guy... They just don't know what to do with these apostles of Christ, right? They really hoped that killing this guy was going to be the end of it, but they keep popping up. They had Peter and John in their courts. They didn't do anything overly uh, ambitious with their punishment, and they basically gave them some warnings and sent them out and said, don't preach about Jesus anymore. Newsflash, they did. They continued to preach, and now they've gathered even more of these apostles in. And they just don't know what to do with these guys who are spreading all of this news about Jesus. And then this guy, this Pharisee, this teacher of the law, who is honored by all the people, he stands up and this is what he tells the Sanhedrin court. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared, appearing to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of census and led a band of people in revolt. This is a different Judas. He too was killed and his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had counted, been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Those of you who were alive during the 60s and 70s, you're probably familiar with the idea that there's a lot of folks out there who claim to be the Messiah. A lot of religious individuals who like to start up cults claiming to be the Son of God or God in the flesh. This is not anything new since the beginning of, of time, since the beginning of man. There have been those who have stood amongst the people and said, I am divine. I am God, the Son of God, a Messiah, a Savior. Fill in the blank with whatever title they prefer. Historians have always been fascinated by these people and the cults and the religions that they start. However, with every single one of these men, and sometimes women, their physical death is the end of it. Their physical death marks the end of the cult that they had started. Maybe 10, 20 years after, there might be still remnants hanging around, professing their, 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 their message, but that too fizzles out over the course of history. 
The only man who ever claimed to be the Son of God, whose religion still existed decades, centuries, millennia after his death, was Jesus Christ. And this guy here, this Pharisee, he makes that point. He says, look, we've dealt with these religious nuts in the past, right? We, we dealt with this guy over here who led a revolt, this guy over here who led a revolt, but we know that once those leaders died, their followers just got scattered to the wind. Nothing happened of it. And so he tells the Sanhedrin court, he says, same thing with this Jesus fella. If this is just him, human being, all this stuff, let's leave it alone. It'll die out before we know it. However, he gives the Sanhedrin court a warning. He says, but if this is indeed true, if this is indeed something of God's will, then we will never win. There's nothing we can do to stop this because we are fighting against God. Fast forward to the end of chapter 6 of Acts. They are um, selecting some apostles to help lead a ministry to the widows there. And it says here, this is, I want you to remember, Acts is written by Paul. This is what he says about Stephen. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Parchorus and, anyway, some other guys. And then right down here in verse 8, he writes, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs amongst the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen. And so right here between these few verses, Paul writes that Stephen is a man who is full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, and full of power. These are the four elements that Paul writes about Stephen as a minister of God, as a follower of Christ, as an apostle. And keep in mind that Paul often calls himself the least of the apostles. He holds these other early apostles in high regard in their positions. And he has these great, wonderful things to say about Stephen, about all these wonderful things about this man, about this man who just everywhere he walks, he just imbues the, the, the lifestyle and the teachings of Christ. But opposition arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen, just a sidebar here for your own, your own biblical education, uh, it was quite common for there to be synagogues and temples, depending on what faith you belong to, dedicated to freed slaves. The freedmen are former slaves of Rome who were able to either buy their freedom or were freed by other masters. And now, as newly freed persons, kind of going out into the world with their own identity and having really no way to, to go about setting that up, they go into these, these synagogues. They go into these places, these palaces, these synagogues of the freedmen. Not palaces, I don't know why I said that, but, but temples, synagogues. And they're trying to argue with Stephen, but they can't because Stephen is full of the wisdom of God. Then they secretly, in verse 11, persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
Now, there's about 53 verses of this speech that Stephen gives, this defense he has for what he's been preaching. And I'm not going to stand here before you today and read it verbatim because it would take quite a bit of our, our sermon this morning to do so. But Stephen's point, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase through this little bit of scripture here, is he's trying, number one, to explain, and this is the most important thing that Jesus tried to do in his life, Jesus wasn't here to abolish the law, he was here to fulfill it. That everything that Moses had set up, Jesus was not here to undo, but rather to fulfill the other end of that um, covenant between God and man. That he was just here to fulfill the law, to, to mark the next phase of what God had been building up for all this time. He was not here to tear apart the law, he was not here to burn it down. And often, case, as he talked about, this, I will tear down this temple in three day, and in three days build it back up again. That got him in a lot of hot water, as Stephen mentions, because people thought he was talking about the actual palace and not his own body. Nevertheless, Stephen goes into all this talk about Moses. And he says, look, today y'all are so focused on the law, right? Because that's what is at the center of, of Jesus' ministry in the early Christian church. It's this idea of the, the word of God against the, legal, the legalism that occurred amongst the Jewish high priests in his time. They became so focused, so dead set on maintaining the law that they had forgot about why the law was there in the first place. They were out there stoning women in the streets because of the law. They had been so, the culture had been so full of hate and fear and division because of the law. And Jesus came to say, hey, look, there's more important things out there in life than the law that you hold. And because of that, people thought he was directly against Moses. But Stephen, he says in his speech, in his defense, he says, you know, Moses, he came and he did all these things for the Israelite people, but make no mistake, y'all fought against him, y'all being Israelites in the early Hebrews, the whole way. And he concludes his speech in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. He says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You will always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteousness. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. He calls them out on the hypocrisy. Because as we have gone through this Bible since January, character after character, book after book, from the garden all the way to the cross, we have seen that the Israelites were very good at receiving the Word of God almost physically in hand, considering the tablets, and still fought against it every step of the way. Right? We saw that throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a story about how the Israelites, even those in charge, often pushed back against God's law over and over and over and over again, unless it was beneficial to them. And so 
Stephen, he's standing here in this court in front of the Sanhedrin, and they're saying, how dare you sully the law? How dare you question the law? How dare you and your master Jesus? Y'all are out here trying to, to tear apart this, this fundamental truth that all of us should live by. And Stephen says, hey, yeah, no, open a history book, buddy, because we've never really held true to the law. Our history books are full of Israel persecuting prophets telling us that we are doing the wrong thing all the way back through time. Paul, or Paul writes that Stephen says, rather, it's always been like this. You have always persecuted the men who are telling you that God's telling you you're going the wrong way. People don't like hearing that. I think we're all guilty, me especially of doing something wrong, having somebody call you out, and instead of just admitting that you're wrong, say, no, 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 I know what I'm doing. I was doing this, that, or the other, right? And you're kind of course correcting. That didn't sit well with the Sanhedrin, being called out like that, being called hypocrites. In verse 54, it reads, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing there at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then they fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And as he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. This picture, these final moments of Stephen's life, paints a beautiful picture. Paul writes it so eloquently that you can picture it in your head. Stephen knows that his time has come. He knows this. He opens his eyes, he looks up, and he actually sees heaven itself. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he knows that I've done what I was supposed to do. It says that the Sanhedrin, the members of the Sanhedrin court, they covered their ears and then rushed him like an angry mob. They covered their ears because they did not want to hear any more of what Stephen had to say because they were so terrified of the truth that he was calling out. Because keep in mind, the Sanhedrin court, we have had now two different members, Nicodemus and this guy I mentioned earlier, that have said, hey, we might be wrong about this whole thing. There's a good chance that we are fighting against God himself. We need to be careful with how we handle this. And so they cover their ears. They rush Stephen as he's calling out to God, calling out to heaven, and they take him out into the street and they begin to stone him to death. This is an absolutely agonizing way to die, possibly second to the cross itself. Stone after stone, brick after brick, until you finally bleed internally to death. Organs crushed, bones broke, skulls fractured. It, it, it's absolutely horrible way every cell of your body screaming in agony and pain until your heart finally gives out but in that moment as the Sanhedrin court are stoning Stephen there's a young man it says 
who is walking up on the scene. And as he walks up on the scene, what does it say? The young people begin to throw out their coats on the ground where he walks. That was the, the high regard people held for Saul of Tarsus. And he walks up and he witnesses these things. He witnesses yet another follower of Christ being punished. And it writes here, Paul in his own words, he approved of their killing him. So we see these three strikes. We see first Peter and John, they get brought into the Sanhedrin court. And the Sanhedrin court basically says, stop it. Don't say any more words. We're threatening you guys. Don't say another word. And they send them out to the streets. Second strike, another group comes in, a little bigger this time. And they say, look, you guys, y'all are, you have to stop this. We're telling you to stop. And they get flogged and sent out on their way. Third strike, Stephen, by himself, makes a passionate plea, calls them out on their hypocrisy, calls them out on, on the fact that they never really cared about the law of Moses, on all these things. And then he is stoned to death at the approval of the author of this book, who was looking back at his guilt, who was looking back at his flaws. Think about that. Think about, for a moment, going in, sitting down and writing your autobiography and writing out in detail your own flaws, your own failings. Think about the strength, the spiritual strength it has to take to recognize when you are wrong. But Stephen does something even more important than anything we have seen up to this point. With his dying breath, he calls out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Sound familiar? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here is Stephen, dying, his whole body filling with blood. He has no strength left in his body. His body is broken. It's dying, it's decaying, it's, it's, it's all these things. And yet, he's got the spiritual strength to tell God. He doesn't even, he's, he's not even out, outright forgiving these people, but he's calling out to God, do not hold these sins against them. Whoo, boy. <laughs> you know, I've got to tell you, if I was in Stephen's position, I don't think that's the thought that I would be having in my mind about my persecutors, about the men throwing stones at me. Somebody cuts me off on 71 and I don't think these things, right? I don't think I've ever been stuck in I-30 traffic and been like, Lord, don't forgive these, forgive these people, God, because they don't know. No, that's not usually the thoughts that cross my mind when I'm inconvenienced by other people, unfortunately. And I think all of us can, can attest to that, right? We are all guilty of, of wishing harm, having poor thoughts towards others. But here is Stephen, literally being stoned to death by those who are quite literally the strongest opponent to the truth of Jesus Christ, the opposition, the opposite of everything that he's working for, the enemy in his story. And yet he calls out to his father, in heaven, 
Do not hold these sins against them. You see, we have a lot to learn from this line, and the line that Jesus states, forgive them for they know not what they do. Growing up, being my age, you know, I was in middle school when 9-11 happened. And I remember hearing from just about everybody that we'd be better off just nuking the whole Middle East. I remember hearing that from multiple people all over the place, that there's just a, a scourge and, and we need to just wipe the floor with everybody. This evil, this atrocity that they committed, all of these things. And I grew up 20 years of hearing people say these things about our enemies. And it's interesting because this mindset that we have, this vengeance mindset, this eye for an eye mentality, it stands in direct opposition of what Jesus preached and what the early Christian leaders showed. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is quite possibly one of the hardest things that we can do as Christians. Because we have this innate desire to see the wrong be punished. We do. I always go with traffic, because traffic, I think, brings out the worst in us. But you know that, right? Somebody cuts you off, somebody does this, that, and the other, and the first thing you start doing is looking for those blue lights and hoping that they get caught, that they get punished for the wrong that they did. We have this idea, too, that is somewhat insidious in modern culture. This idea of karma. Karma is not a Christian belief, by the way. But we like the idea of what goes around comes around. That they're going to get they're just they're going to get what they deserve. That bad people are eventually going to have bad things happen to them. But you notice Stephen doesn't cry out for God to come down and wipe them out with vengeance and lightning. He doesn't cry out for them to meet their own violent ends. Jesus doesn't cry out for the Sanhedrin court to be crucified themselves. God isn't giving us what we deserve. The very idea of karma, the very idea of people getting what they deserve is as unchristian as it comes. It really is. It's hard. In this world, it's so hard because we have this idea of balance, right? We have this idea that good people get good things and bad people should get bad things. When that doesn't happen, the world is off kilter and something's wrong. And the idea of karma, which is actually more of a reincarnation belief that what you do in your life, you know, brings you back into this world in a higher place, is not even about, we've twisted the word so much, it's not even recognizable to where it came from. But it is so anti-Christian, it's ridiculous. Jesus Christ died on the cross even though we didn't deserve it. A man without sin died so that those who sinned could live. 
That's the exact opposite of karma. We do not deserve salvation. We don't deserve the love of Christ. We don't deserve His sacrifice. We don't deserve salvation. We are sinners. We are bound for death because of that. That's the punishment for sin. Because if you tried your hardest right now and you, you prayed and you asked God for forgiveness for all the wrong, wrong that you've done, I want you to try to make it to next Sunday when we meet again right here and not sin. Not have an evil thought, not have a lustful eye, not have hatred for another neighbor or anything. We can't. We can't. It's impossible. We deserve hell for our sins. We deserve damnation for our sins. That's what we deserve. That would be karma. But no, instead, we were shown grace. We were shown mercy. Mercy is the opposite of justice, by the way. Jesus, in the temple, when he was left alone with the adulterous woman, he had just said, let he without sin cast the first stone. Jesus, in that moment, had every right by law to throw a stone at her, to start the process of stoning this woman. Karma, justice, these ideas of wrong getting wrong and good getting good, in that moment there with that adulterous woman, Jesus should have punished her by the very law that he was. The very law of Moses. And yet, what does he show her? Mercy. Forgiveness. Grace. As Stephen died, what does he show his oppressors? What does he show the, literally the people killing him? Mercy. Forgiveness. Grace. When we go out into the world... We are met with evil and hatred. We are met with bad people who want to do bad things to us, bad things to things that we believe in. That anger that stirs up in our hearts, that fear, that hatred, that violence, that bloodshed that we long for, those are not Christian things, ladies and gentlemen, or ladies. Those are things of the devil. Through and through. He likes those things. He likes us to have those emotions, to have those, those thoughts. Because they're an emotional cancer on us. A spiritual cancer. Even worse so. Because the Bible tells us that if we have sin in our heart, if we have hatred in our heart, if we have fear in our heart, all these things, that, that heart is not full of God. Right? It tells us very clearly. Paul writes that, that God is love. Perfect love, that, that perfect love casts out fear in our hearts. We have so much to learn from the people in this Bible, so many lessons that we can apply directly to our lives. And we're going to see in the early Christian church when these men and women who were, who were founding something in direct opposition of the entire world, the amount of grace, mercy, they showed their oppressors. It wasn't hate, it wasn't violence, it wasn't torches and pitchforks. It was this calmness in their final hours and days. 
as Paul writes from prison cell. He shows this stillness in knowing that he is doing the right thing, that he is living a Christian life, that there is nothing more important in this world than the Word of Jesus. That everything else, everything else is so utterly trivial in comparison to this right here. That's what Stephen knew in his final breaths. That he did the right thing. He was dying for it, but he was still doing the right thing. Because of that, he had a peace in his heart. The kind of peace that allowed him to forgive and show mercy to his very killers. The kind of grace and mercy that we should show others, regardless of who they are regardless of their intentions. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the story of Stephen. Lord, we thank you for the story of this first martyr, Lord, this first Christian martyr who died for his beliefs, who died for, for the things that he had done, for, who died because he preached the message of Jesus Christ. But Lord God, let us reflect not only on his life, not only on his death, but on his grace, on his forgiveness, on his ability to see past the hate and the evil in this world and to see the truth of God that it is not karma or justice or, or, or doing, but rather, Lord God, that it is grace, forgiveness, and mercy that should rest in the hearts of the children of Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hatridge Sermons podcast. I greatly encourage everyone listening to make sure you subscribe, rate, and review if your podcasting platform allows that. If there is a platform that you enjoy that this podcast is not available on, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know so that we can make that happen. As always, if you know of anyone who could use this word, use these messages, if there's any particular sermon that speaks to you about someone in your life, feel free to share this episode and this podcast with others. As always, it is a blessing to be able to reach more people through this audio form with our sermons that you don't have to attend in person in order to receive the message of God. That being said, you are always welcome to visit us in person at either the Ben Loman Cumberland Presbyterian Church with services at 10 a.m. on Sundays or the Brownstown Community Church, which has services at 11. You are more than welcome at either one of those churches and we look forward to seeing you. Thank you again for listening and Godspeed. Thank you.